0: Tell me what you love, and I will tell you who you are. I jotted that down the other day as I was preparing for this sermon. I thought, wow, that's really profound. Maybe I kind of came up with something pretty awesome. And then I put it into Google, and sure enough, some uh, some Frenchman back in the 1800s, a guy named Arsène Husset, who was a French novelist and poet, apparently wrote that too. Like, oh, well, he beat me to it. But it makes sense, doesn't it? Tell me what you love, and I will tell you who you are. If you really love sports you're probably a sports fan. If you really love to create things and use your creativity, you're probably some sort of an artist, right? And if you love money above all other things, you're probably a greedy person. If you love to be around people who are good and fair and and honest and decent, you're probably a good person too. And if you can't stand to be around those people because they make you feel inferior or, or feel bad, it's probably an indication that you're not a good person. If you love people who do evil and injustice, and not like Jesus to win them over to himself, but because you want to participate in their evil or because you want their approval, then you're probably an evil person. Tell me what you love and I will tell you who you are. Today's passage is all about love and what we can learn about ourselves based on who and what we love. So uh, I encourage you to turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. If you're new to using a Bible, if you just open up to the last book of the Bible, Revelation, and then you flip a few short books to the left, you'll get to the little letter of 1 John. If you're using the the Bibles provided there in the seats, that's on page 707. So while you're turning to 1 John chapter 2, uh, let's go ahead and recap the series that uh, when I've Uh, have the opportunity to preach here. I've been going through uh, the letter of 1 John. And really we've called it Basics for Believers. There's a lot of basic foundational truths in this little letter for the Christian life. And John often uses very simple language. But he also often says very profound things while using that simple language. And in our overview sermon, when we looked at uh, the first sermon in the series, when we kind of looked over the whole book, we really thought one of the best ways to think about this little letter is to think about three tests, or three elements of true, genuine Christianity that we need to test for in our lives. And I kind of played off the periodic table of elements there. We have three different themes throughout this letter, and they're really kind of uh test for elements of the Christian life. So truth, there are certain things you must believe in order to be a Christian, and that Truths that must be affirmed and taught in order for our church or ministry to truly be Christian. We could call that the truth test. Next is light. And by light, we mean living according to the truth. Or you could think of that as morality and your personal behavior, living out that truth. What we do. So you could think of that as the moral test or the light test. And then we have love. Who, what, and how you love shows whether or not you truly are a Christian. And as we'll learn today, the presence or absence of love in a congregation or in a ministry can really show whether or not true Christianity is there. So we could call this the love test. And today we're really going to look hard, uh, we're going to really begin to look at the love test. We'll see this in future passages too. Last time we were uh, going through this series, we looked really uh, closely at the light test. And we're going to touch on that a little bit today, but really it's primarily about the love test. So let's go ahead now that I've stalled long enough. Um, I think you'll be helped if you look down at the, our passage. I'll be re- referencing to other passages, but we'll be referring to this text uh, quite often. So First John chapter two, beginning in verse seven. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. My title for this sermon today is Love, the New Old Commandment. Love, the New Old Commandment. And I just have three simple points for you today. One, the old command. Two, the new command. And three, the love test. So let's look at our first point, the old command. We see this in verse seven. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. Notice how John begins this passage. He says, beloved. He uses a term of endearment for his audience and by implication to us. And John is modeling for us the very love that he is gonna be talking about in this passage. Well, what does it mean that it's an old command? Well, one, one way it's an old command is this teaching to love God and to love others has been around early on in God's revelation to man. It's in the Old Testament, and it's also been reiterated by Jesus and the Apostle Paul, as we'll see here shortly. What's he mean here by in the beginning? Is he talking about the beginning of all time or the beginning of creation? No, he's talking to his audience about the beginning of their Christian life. So he's saying this is an old teaching. When you first heard about Christianity, you heard about the importance of love. So those are the different ways that this is an old commandment. Um, so, and loving, loving God, this is really a unique concept to biblical Christianity, a God who loves and and a God who values and emphasizes love. My mother was sharing with me a story of Gladys Aylward. She was a missionary to China back in the 1930s, 1940s, before uh, the communists uh, expelled a lot of the missionaries there. And uh, Some of you have probably seen uh, one of the movies uh, that was made about her life, but on one occasion she was out in a remote part of China, probably Tibet I would imagine, because she, she and her partner, a, a Christian doctor, came across a Buddhist monk. And these monks had been waiting around years and years for someone to tell them about the God who loved. One of them had gotten a scrap of paper that had John 3.16, for God so loved the world, written out on it in their language. And for many years, they had been sitting around longing for someone to come tell them about the God who loved because that was just unique to their experience. A personal God who wasn't just some nebulous force and then a God who wasn't just fickle and just like us, but actually was a loving God. It was, it was something that blew their mind. And when someone finally brought Christianity to them, they could finally understand about the God who loved so it's an old command. Well, let's, let's trace this old command throughout the, the Bible. Uh, you can go all the way back to Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, where God says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. The people of God in the Old Testament were commanded to love him. And not just a half-hearted, obligatory love. They were commanded to love God sincerely with all their being and in every area of their life. So that old command is to first and foremost love God, but uh, it isn't just about loving God alone. So if we look at Leviticus nine verses seventeen through eighteen, God says, "You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord." The context here, in in Leviticus, there's a lot of laws in that Old Testament period that deal with not committing injustice on other people and relationships between people. And so there's a lot of negative commands. Don't do this kind of injustice on another person. And there's some positive commands about showing compassion to neighbors and to foreigners, to sojourners, to the poor. And then there's laws, as you see here even in these verses, about handling conflicts graciously and reasonably. He's saying, listen, don't allow bitterness and resentment to build up in your heart. If you've got an issue with someone, try to handle that graciously or just let it pass, as uh, might be applicable. And also notice this I am statement here at the end. It's not just a tag on. Uh, This command to love is grounded in the character of God himself and his own moral authority. Because of God's holy character, his people should love each other. And if they love each other, they will show compassion on each other, and they will not do wrong to each other. Now let's fast forward to the New Testament. Uh, There was a time when one of the scribes, one of the the biblical scholars of the day, came to Jesus, and really it was a time when he was getting lots of questions, and most of these weren't really sincere questions, uh, looking for knowledge. They were trying to trip up Jesus. These were people who were jealous of Jesus' power and influence. They didn't like him, and they wanted to try to trip him up, either get him in trouble with the Roman powers, or get him in trouble with with the, the Jewish people, or with some other religious leader. And one of the questions he got was from a young scholar who said, what is the greatest commandment? Now this may, might sound like a straightforward question, but it really wasn't. Um, there had been a uh, ongoing debate among the different rabbis of the day. They had classified all the different laws that they had found in the Old Testament, and they would rank them according to importance, and they'd argue endlessly about which was the most important. And so basically he was hoping that Jesus would say something that would get him into trouble with somebody. But then we hear in Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40, we see... Jesus' answer, and he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. These two commands, to love God and to love others, are related. So notice here, one is like the other. They go hand in hand, to love God, to love others, to love God to love people. It really is a summation of all the Old Testament laws. And in a parallel passage in Mark 12, uh, the, the person who asked this question, when he hears Jesus' answer, says, wow, you've spoken well, master. And then Jesus, knowing that something might be changing in the man's heart, that he came, originally came as a skeptic trying to, to trip him up and not realize the, the truth of what Jesus said. He said, you are not far from the kingdom. What's he saying? That you are not far from really understanding the main point and receiving me. Um, And then the Bible says at that point, people stopped asking him questions because they realized Christ didn't just have an encyclopedic knowledge of the Old Testament, knew all the nitty-gritty facts. He actually understood the main point as well. Well, the Apostle Paul also talks about this old command, the command to love. In Romans 13, verses 8 through 10, he says, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. If you look at the book of Romans, all the early chapters... Uh, really 1 through 11, Paul is explaining the gospel, and he's explaining some of the core teachings of Christianity and how important those things are. And then the later part of the book, he's getting into, okay, if you believe this stuff, this is how it should play itself out in your life. That's the context here of this particular passage, how Christians should interact with one another. Notice how Paul states that all the moral commands of God could be fulfilled if we just love the way we should. Love is a summary of God's command. Love fulfills The law. So what are some takeaways from this concept of the old command? Well, for one thing, it it should help us understand that uh, we shouldn't overemphasize the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, Because some people do. Some people um, believe that the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath and the God of the New Testament is a God of love. But uh, this helps us understand that, no, there's a God of just wrath in both the Old Testament and New Testament and a God of love both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Also, you might, you might think it seems kind of strange to be commanded to love. Isn't that just something that spontaneously happens or not and to command it kind of would kill the, the, the love, wouldn't it? But no, um, it, when you truly understand who God is uh, as revealed in the scripture, it should just be a logical conclusion to love him and admire him and want to please him. And then the moral commands uh, to, to love other people the way you naturally love yourself. Even pagan philosophers have understood that this is wise moral teaching. This is the golden rule, right? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And with we, we just common sense, we know that the world would be a different place if everyone really took that command to heart. Well, this also helps us understand how God can be a good and loving God, and yet tell us not to do certain things. I mean, it makes sense with laws about treating other people justly, right? If you love them, you won't do an injustice against them, and by loving them, that will prevent that type of injustice from taking place. It also prevents us from being selfish, And this is what helps us make sense of uh, God's commands regarding sexual morality. In today's culture, it's popular to think like, hey, if you disapprove of someone's behavior or their lifestyle, then you're just automatically a hater, and that's unloving and unaccepting. But no, the God who loves us and knows what's best for us has given us guidelines and because he loves us and because he knows what's best for us. Well, the command to love God and to love others is old. It's a core teaching of the Old Testament and New Testament scriptures It's a command grounded in God's character and if it's obeyed fully, it will fulfill all of God's moral commands. And it's a basic truth of Christianity, one that Christians are exposed to when they first become believers or from the beginning, as John would say, of their Christian life and walk. So that's the old command to love. It's as old as God's revelation to man in the Old Testament and old in the sense of being a foundational Christian truth for new believers. So point number one is the old command Point number two, the new command. And we see this in verse eight. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. He says, at the same time. The NIV says, yet. And the Nasby hopefully says, on the other hand. Paul is saying, well, on the other hand, it's also a new commandment. Now this is not a contradiction. So John, when he's writing this letter, is very old, but he is not senile. And he is not talking out of both sides of his mouth. What he's saying is that there's two ways of looking at this kind of love. John loved, if you read some of his other writings, the Gospel of John and other letters, you know that John loves those double meanings where he probably has two or sometimes even three different meanings uh, in mind for the same phrase. Well, in what sense is this command new? It's talking about a newness, and the commentators all agree this isn't like a newness of time, not like that was the earlier command, now this is the newer command, and it kind of replaces or contradicts the old command. No, no, it's just, it's the same command, but it's a fresher version, a newer in kind version of the old command. Well, what does it mean in him? Who is that talking about? It's clearly talking about Jesus. Uh, It is true in Jesus. He is the best example of this love, and he is the one who makes it possible. And in you, this shouldn't just be a love of Jesus, but as we're going to see here soon, this love should fulfill itself in our lives. It's a test of real Christianity, and love is something that will occur in the, in the Christian life. Well, because. Well, why does he say because there? Well, there's something decisive that happened in human history which is continually growing stronger and stronger. Uh, We know from other parts of the scripture that Jesus is the light. And the truth about Jesus is light. And we know that when Jesus came into the world and when he died on the cross, he was ushering in that light. And that light will overcome the darkness. Even though from watching the nightly news it might seem like the darkness is winning, we have the promises of God that one day light will truly be victorious. And as we see the Lord working in our own lives and in the lives of those around us and the gospel going to other people, we can can get a hint of that light that is growing and over coming. So that's the kind of light that is associated with, with the love of God and the love in Christ and the love that should be in our life. It's already shining. Well, there's also another passage uh, from John's writing, uh, writings in the Gospel of John where Jesus talks about a new commandment and it really helps us understand what he means by new commandment here. So if you look at the Gospel of John in John 13, verses 34 through 35, Jesus says to his disciples here, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So Jesus is our great model and our example of this love, that we should love the way he loved. Well, how has he loved? Well, if you read through the gospel accounts, you, see, you read about the life of Christ while he uh, lived here. What are some ways that Jesus showed love? Well, he loved to the death. Some of you have heard that passage of Jesus where he says greater love hath no man than this than that he lay down his life for his friends. Jesus loved so much he was willing to sacrifice his uh, his life for the objects of his love. Uh, Those of us who are in the army, we know of uh, the kind of honor and respect we give to those who love their country so much, who love their battle buddies so much that they would lay down their life uh, for their friends and for their country. So Jesus loved to the death. He also loves his enemies. You know, it's really easy to love people who are gracious to you and kind to you and do nice things to you. But Jesus commanded us. Remember, he says, I say to you, love your enemies and do good to those who mistreat you. And Christ uh, actually lived this out himself. Remember his crucifixion. He, is actually, he was actually praying for those who were putting him to death in that terrible form of execution. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Christ also showed love to sinners, people who are unlovely. Marginalized outcast, remember he got criticized a lot for eating with publicans and sinners, of course he wasn 't uh, eating with them and fellowshipping with them for the purpose of participating, but because he wanted to reach them and, and show the love of God to them. Jesus was loving to the helpless, people who couldn 't do anything for them, uh, anything for him. Uh, you know how people can love to be uh, Kind and gracious to people who can advance their careers or do nice things for them. Jesus consistently showed love to people who were helpless and could do nothing for him. Widows, prostitutes, lepers, people who had contagious skin diseases and had to be outside of uh, rest of civilization and couldn't do anything for him. Children, which we know back in that culture weren't uh, valued very highly. Jesus showed love to the helpless. His love also caused him to be very patient Uh, He is constantly being patient with his disciples. Here are these 12 men that he was pouring his life into for three-plus years, and so consistently they completely missed the point. He's teaching them important truths about himself and about God, and and often the gospel uh, writers will record that a few moments later, they're arguing about who's the most important, who's the greatest, who's going to sit on God's right hand and on his left hand in the kingdom. Um, Jesus was patient with them. And he was also compassionate when he saw people with physical needs uh, who were experiencing the effects of their own sin or just experiencing the effects of sin in the world. They had diseases, they had uh, demon possession, uh, they had maladies. He, he uh, had compassion on them and healed them because of that compassion. And also he had special compassion for people who didn't have spiritual shepherds. There's there's many occasions where where Jesus would look out on a multitude, a group of people, and he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. They didn't have anyone to teach them the truth about God, and he had compassion on them. And what did he do? Even though he was weary, he was tired, it was inconvenient, he would go on taking hours and hours to tell them the truth about God. And this also is a helpful reminder to thinking about compassion, that compassion does involve emotions. So just warm, fuzzy feelings and good, good feelings about someone, that's, that alone is not love. But there should be some sort of internal feeling uh, uh, that is part of love, Lo- uh, that feeling that should leave, lead to action. So it's an emotion, it's a desire, it's a concern to wanna to do what's right for a person, even if it's not easy, even if that person isn't very lovable in the moment. And if that desire and that internal uh, thought is, is, is genuine, it will lead to actions of love. It's very similar to other truths in Christianity. If you have true faith, the Bible says it will produce works. That faith is a belief on the inside, and if it's genuine and given the opportunity, it will produce works. If you truly repent... You, you change your mind about your sin and your status before God, and it's sincere. It's on the inside. Given, if given the opportunity, it will lead to, even if imperfectly, a change in your life and in your actions. So that's, that's important. It is internal that leads to external results. Christ's love is also kind. He was described as one of the meekest people who ever lived, and that's not weakness. He was meek. That was that strength under control, uh, having compassion for those weaker than himself, and yet, even though he was incredibly kind, sometimes he could show tough love. Remember that time he rebuked Peter? Peter was trying, just couldn't understand why Jesus needed to be crucified. He said, no, no, my Lord, that will never happen to you. I won't let that happen. What does Jesus say? He calls Peter Satan. He says, basically saying, hey, that, that's what Satan wants me to do. He wants me to avoid the cross. And he gives him some tough love. And then the Pharisees, uh, remember they were the religious leaders of the day. They were more concerned about how their appearance and their status in society. They knew a lot about the the law, but they had no love for God and they had no love for the people that they they should have been serving with the truth. Christ could be very confrontational with them, but in a loving way. Well, how do you match up? Do you love Jesus? Uh, Do you love people like Jesus did? Uh, This has been, uh, honestly, one of the most uh, convicting sermons I've ever prepared as I look at my own love and see how it falls so far short of the love of Jesus. Can your neighbors, your coworkers, or your relatives judge the genuineness of your faith by your love for other Christians, by your love for your local church. Notice the test language in this verse. Others can and will gauge your faith by your love for each other. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And this test language leads us to our third and final point. Point number three, the love test. We'll see this test language again in verses 9 through 11. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. What's the bottom line here? We all know that saying something is so doesn't make it so, right? You can say that you're a rutabaga, doesn't make you one. I can say that I'm a PT stud with a perfect PT score, but you make me take a PT test, you'll quickly find out that isn't exactly true. Um, We all know this, right? You can put on a false uh, uh, exterior or you can be self-deceived. You can think you're one thing, but you really aren't. Look at that whoever language. Every verse here pretty much begins with whoever. That's test language. Whoever fits into this category is this. If you find the presence or absence of this substance, love or hate in this instance, then you know what you're dealing with here. It's test language. Well, who's the brother here? Uh, It's talking about whether you hate brothers or you love brothers. The brother primarily means fellow believers. So all throughout the, the New Testament, when a writer is talking to a group of believers, he talks about them as brothers and sisters or brethren. But it also, uh, so that's the primary meaning is other Christians, but it also has the sense of just mankind generally. Everyone else created in the image of God. All human beings created in the image of God. We're all, even if we haven't been adopted into the God's family yet and we're truly sons and daughters yet, the, as the Bible says in Acts, we're still, offspring in a sense, and so we're all brothers and sisters. Or uh, as uh, C.S. Lewis might say in some of his writings, we're all sons of Adam and daughters of Eve in that sense. So we should have love for all uh, everyone, but especially to those who are of the household of faith, as another verse says. Well, what's the darkness there? That's not just sin and doing what's wrong. It's, It's a sinful lifestyle, and it's really a place. It's like the kingdom of darkness. So if you're in darkness, it's like you're living in that realm of darkness. Well, what's the light? Well, that's like we talked about in an earlier sermon, the light lifestyle, a lifestyle of living in the kingdom of light, according to the truth, in obedience to God, um, living like you are a citizen of that kingdom of light. And what's stumbling? Uh, throughout the Bible, stumbling is a type of uh, tripping up with sin, getting caught in sin, falling into sin. And, and it kind of helps us understand here that if you have a right heart attitude, it will prevent you from stumbling into sin. And vice versa. If you have a wrong heart attitude, you're living in darkness, you can't help but to stumble into sin. Well, in the dark, being in the darkness, that's the sinful state. And then walking in the darkness, that walking is just your lifestyle, it's the pattern of your life. So if you're walking in darkness, you are consistently living in a way that reflects that you are a citizen of the kingdom of darkness. And then blindness. Uh, Clearly, John is talking about spiritual blindness here. Remember when Jesus uh, rebuked the Pharisees and he said, you guys are spiritually blind? You're blind? And they're like, well, I can see clearly. What are you talking about? I'm blind. But he was talking about spiritual blindness. They misunderstood the scriptures or they just didn't understand God. And so, yeah, they couldn't understand themselves and they couldn't understand the command to love. They were spiritually blind and they were stumbling. Well, why is this test, the love test, the test of love, such a good test for true Christianity? Because love is the natural result, or the fruit, you might say, of true Christian faith. I was just doing my devotions recently uh, in Ephesians, and in Ephesians 1, verse 15, Paul is greeting the Ephesian church, and he's talking about the reasons for why he uh, thanks God for them and prays for them. And he says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. Notice how faith in Jesus and love toward all the saints go hand in hand. Now, Maybe you're not familiar with the, the term saints here. This isn't really the Catholic understanding of saints as some sort of super-Christians that you should pray to, but the biblical understanding of saints, which means anyone who's believed in Jesus, has been set apart. And in the eyes of God, they're perfect because Christ's righteousness has been given to them. So that's what he means by saints, Christians here. So if you have true faith in the Lord Jesus, you're going to have love toward all the saints. We understand this, right? That, that love should be an evidence of true Christianity and the fruit of the Spirit uh, Paul lists out different fruit or evidences of true Christianity. What's the first one he says in Galatians 5.22? But the fruit of the Spirit is love. Love is the first of those fruits that is listed. Well, what is hate? Um, certainly, uh, it, we need to know what, what it looks like if we're hating uh, the, the brethren. Now, certainly it looks like angry rage or bitterness holding a grudge for years and refusing to have any kind of reconciliation or even more extreme versions of persecuting Christians or uh, going on a shooting spree of Christians, like you could generally say like, okay, you clearly don't love Christians and you're probably not a Christian yourself. That seems obvious. But where we live in our daily lives, what does that hatred of brothers really look like? It, It doesn't have to be that extreme. It could be less extreme, just like consistent irritation or unkindness or impatience with other people. Or it can be even more passive than that. It could be inconsiderateness. Just uh, not thinking about other people at all. You're just completely clueless. I and mean, we can all be like this on certain occasions, but if that's a consistent pattern of your life, I just don't care about other people. really don't care about those uh, other Christians. Just focused on myself or indifference. I'm aware of them, but really—they're it's not worth my trouble to try to help anybody else. I really don't care about uh, being put out at all to help anyone else. It can also be deceptive. Some people really want to look like a loving person or they want to feel like they're a loving person. And this can lead them to be very manipulative or controlling because really they just love themselves and they love the idea of looking loving or um, uh, feeling like they're a loving person. Uh, and so we can again deceive ourselves. As John MacArthur says, this isn't just a one uh, once in a while occurrence. This is a attitude, consistent attitude of life. It's a, uh, not just a momentary giving into temptation but a pattern of life, a pattern of hate, and self-centeredness and using and abusing other people. As I was reading through a a sermon by Martin Lloyd-Jones, he's my uh, dead mentor. You know, uh, Kyle talks about how the the Spurge, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, uh, who's a great preacher of the 1800s, was one of his dead mentors. I've kind of chosen Martin Lloyd-Jones, a great expository preacher from the 20th century. And uh, he, he said it well. He kind of described what an ordinary person who is kind of trying to live the Christian life, but really doesn't have love in their heart for their brothers and sisters uh, when he wrote this. These people with this unloving nature are always finding problems and troubles. They always see insults where they do not exist. There's always something upsetting them. They're always being put out. They are constantly stumbling because of their unloving spirit. But, says John, they cause other people to stumble also because as they're in this state and condition, no one knows what to do with them. They are always so touchy and sensitive and they constantly run other people into trouble so it's kind of like that multiplier effect they're they're hateful and unloving and they just spread that kind of hate and unlove well what is love that's the negative Um, we don't want that to be a part of our life and if that's the consistent pattern of our life it shows that we're probably not truly believers well what does love look like well love it like we said before it involves emotion so it is should be a feeling of wanting what's best for somebody else even if it's not always easy Um, But feelings alone are not sufficient. It's a disposition to someone to want to do what's best for them, wanting good for them, which, if genuine, will lead to actions of love. So it's a feeling towards someone that leads to actions of love, wanting and doing what is best for someone. Well, what does love look like, right? You know, it's, it's one thing to get a definition and kind of understand in your head what love is, but it's often helpful to have a pattern, an example of that. And like we talked earlier, Jesus Christ is that perfect pattern. So if you want to see what love looks like, read through the gospel accounts of of Christ's life sometime, and you'll have a wonderful living example of what love looks like. And then there's also another helpful passage in in the the scriptures that help us know in a very detailed way what love is and is not. 1 Corinthians 13. I'm sure some of you uh, have heard this at weddings, right? But uh, the love chapter... Now, it's entirely appropriate to use this at weddings. Uh, I can't speak from personal experience, but I hear tell that Christian love is really an important uh, element of a a good God-honoring marriage. Um, But uh, while it's appropriate for that, it's so much more than that. As we've seen here, hopefully a great takeaway that you get from this sermon is that love is not optional. It's just not something like, oh, yeah, that's good. I'll work on that. It's something that I should get around to. But love is essential, Love is an important core part of true biblical Christianity. And so uh, I encourage you sometime to read, maybe even this afternoon, read through 1 Corinthians 13. I've been reading a a book that's kind of like a commentary on that chapter, and it's been very convicting. And one of the things the author challenged uh, people to do is as you're reading through that passage, and it says love, or if you have an older, older version, it says charity. Love is. Love is kind. Love is not irritable. And put your name in there. Dan is kind. Dan is long-suffering. Dan is not easily irritated. And uh, it's incredibly convicting because if you've ever seen me on I-24 or sometimes dealing with some of the craziness in the army, you know I can get irritated as well. And that's really a form of, uh, of lacking in love, of actual hatred, just that irritation with people and uh, not loving them in that moment when they're causing you irritation. Well, I just have three quick applications for you here, and then we're done. Application number one, do you love God? Do you enjoy learning about him, reading his book, the Bible? Do you have any, I know, do you enjoy talking to him, praying? I know that prayer and Bible reading, especially if you've never gotten into the habit, can be a difficult thing to do, but do you have a desire? Do you want to know more about God by reading about him and by spending time communing with him in prayer and praising him and and sharing your, your concerns and your requests with him? Do you appreciate him for his attributes of holiness, power, love, goodness, and all the rest? Well, what are some reasons that someone wouldn't love God? Well, one could just be unbelief. You just don't believe God who is who he is, and so, of course, you're not going to love him. Or doubt. Maybe you have some serious doubts about whether God is trustworthy, he is who he says he is. Or maybe you blame God, you wrongly blame God for the, the, the bad things in your life uh, or the bad things that you see in the world today. Um, and you just can't love him because of that. Or maybe there's another way that you could not love God, and that's because of your self-righteousness. Sometimes very outwardly religious or very moral people can actually down-deep hate God because they're so frustrated uh, with his demands. This was the case of Martin Luther, the great reformer. Uh, He was a German, and uh, he was so troubled about his soul and his need for forgiveness that he became a monk. He lived in a monastery and performed all kinds of religious rituals and confessed every sin he could possibly think of but he never had peace. And he he said, if I was honest, I actually hated God because I never felt like I could satisfy him. I could never live up to his standard. But one day Martin Luther was reading the New Testament and he saw the truth that we are saved not by what we do, but by believing in Jesus, by faith. That is what makes us righteous. And he was now able to experience the love of God and that made all the difference. And he wanted to tell everybody in the world about it. And that's uh, one of the many things that helped produce the Protestant Reformation. To know God is to love God. You don't truly understand God if you don't have some form of admiration and love for Him. And if you find in yourself a genuine, if imperfect, love for God within you, it probably means that you're a Christian, that you have turned from your sin and relied on Christ. Do you love God? Application number two Do you love God's people? And none of us do this perfectly, this side of heaven, okay? So no, no one here is, the, is perfect in loving their brother and sister in Christ. But do you care about other believers? Do you pray for them? Do you try to help them physically if you have the opportunity and you're aware of a physical need? Do you spend time with them? Do you even desire to be around them? And I don't want to make church attendance into some sort of legalistic, you know, check the box kind of thing. But uh, the reasons why you would miss a, a service, a gathering of other believers... What does that say about your priorities? Is it something you can't avoid or just is going to happen? Or uh, is it? do you have a, a desire to be with brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you have a desire to show hospitality with them, whether that's inviting them into your own home or meeting with them outside of normal church services, trying to get to know them? Do you have a willingness to commit to believers in Christ? You know, uh, we can be a very commitment-averse society. Uh, men, especially, famously so, right? Ladies, can I hear an amen? Um, but... Uh, love, rather than killing love, commitment can actually make love stronger. And what's a commitment that you can make to your brothers and sisters in Christ, especially in this gathering? This is one of the reasons that Kyle and I are so um, strong about our views about church membership. We think it's, it's important for a Christian, if they want to have a healthy Christian life, to make a commitment, official commitment to the believers that they regularly gather with. Um, and so uh, you want to know more about this, sit in on one of our church membership uh, classes sometime. You don't have to join, but it's a great way to find out what we believe here as a church and why we think membership so important. But that kind of commitment, are you willing to make any kind of commitment to your brothers and sisters in Christ? Or are you willing to be at all inconvenienced or put out for, to serve other Christians at all? Or will you only help out whenever it's super convenient to you? Do you love God's people? If you have no desire to love Christians at all, you probably never truly trusted in Christ. But you can today. That doesn't have to be your continued state. Uh, Application number three, this is really for Christians. Christian, are you a loving person? Would people describe you as a loving person? Kind, considerate, self-sacrificing. If not, they should. As we've seen today, love is a command. And love should be a part of the Christian life. It's not optional. Love is essential to the Christian life. And this is how people would be, should be able to tell that our faith is real. If we love God, we will love his people. Well, uh, non-Christian, maybe you're here today and you, you know you're not a Christian or you're just not sure, you're still evaluating the claims of Christianity. Have you seen that you have a lack of love for God and, and love for God's people? Would you like that to change? Would you like to know how you can actually change that? Maybe you're here today and you're a Christian and you realize, hey, I do have a genuine love for God and love for God's people even if it's not perfect, but I also see lots of ways that I could be a more loving person. Guess what? The, the answer to both of you, Christian and non-Christian, is the exact same. It's the gospel. The truth that even though we are all by nature unlovely people, God loved us and he loved us so much that he sent Jesus to die for our sins so that we could experience forgiveness and that we could experience love from a holy and righteous God. One who can't Ignore evil, but who has made provision in Christ so that he can show love to us. When you know and experience the gospel, it allows you to experience the love of God. A love that will work itself out in your life. Now, spoiler alert, if you're here when I'm uh, continuing this series and we reach 1 John 4, we're really going to hit this, this hard, that the source of our love is God's love. And what is the manifestation of, of God's love? It's sending Jesus to die for our sin. If you have questions about this, you want to know more about how you can know your sins are forgiven and how you can truly experience the love of God, please talk to me, talk to Kyle afterwards, talk to one of our members. We'd love to share with you from our personal experience and from the Bible how you can know your sins are forgiven and how you can know the love of God. Well, as we close, let's look again at the first word in this passage, beloved. Uh, John has experienced this love and he is showing this love for his audience and to us by using a term of endearment. Uh, and notice how it is that he shows his love. He's giving them truth. One of the ways that John is showing love to these uh, these children in the faith is by giving them this truth. That's why the Bible says that we should speak the truth in love. We should speak, it, speak the truth in a loving way, not in a hateful way. And that sharing truth is itself a way to show love. So John is modeling that love in a number of ways. But I don't think John is just t- talking about his own love in this a passage. He, again, John loves double and triple meanings sometimes. He is telling his audience and us that if we have trusted Christ, we are beloved. If you're a Christian here today, you are a loved person. Uh, there's a, a great preacher today named Thabiti Anyabwile. Uh, he has a church plant in Anacostia, uh, Maryland, or uh, in the D- District of Columbia. He was, used to be on staff at a church I used to attend in Washington, D.C., and he would begin every sermon by when he was done with the prayer and he started to preach, he'd say, hello, beloved, in his deep, resonant voice. And it was just a wonderful way to reinforce just the attitude of so many of the gospel and epistle writers that they loved uh, their people and that they were loved by God, reminding them that they had been loved by God in Christ. Well, the command, to love, uh, the command is to love God, to love others, and to love each other the way Christ has loved us. So I hope you, you all realize that we have a lot of work to do at being more loving. Uh, we need to rejoice in the love of God that he has perfectly shown to us in Christ. And when we do, we will love God more and we will love our fellow Christians more. And if we have no love for God and no love for other believers, then it's pretty clear that we're not a Christian. Love is one of the results of true faith in Christ. Tell me who you love and I will tell you who you love. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.